the heat is on this week in the capital region, with high temperatures and no shortage of newsmakers. On this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the top stories in the Times Union. A law enforcement leader does not want to be explaining how it's much more okay for an officer to be kneeling on somebody's skull as opposed to their neck. We'll hear an exclusive interview with Albany Police Chief Eric Hawkins. Not just this token that's been propped up to appease the Black community. And local strip clubs are open. Except, of course, now they're not fully nude. They have to keep one thing on. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. Let's start with a look at what happened at the Times Union this week. I am here with Casey Seiler, editor of the Times Union, once again, and we're going to go over some of the top headlines this week in the Times Union. First off, uh, we got a video this week um, that portrays a Schenectady cop kneeling on a young man's neck while he's trying to apprehend them. Can you tell us what came of that? Well, actually, kneeling on his head, which was, you know, some would think is a bit of a distinction without a difference but actually was a, a big deal for, the, uh, for Schenectady's law enforcement leadership. This was the case of a young Guinea-American man who was approached by a patrol officer named Brian Palmer um, and asked about um, the allegation that this young man was slashing tires in the neighborhood. Apparently some sort of um, neighborhood dispute might have been at the root of it. After being told that he needed to turn around so he could be cuffed, Young man takes off, short foot pursuit ensues, and the officer brings him down and puts him into what is apparently referred to as a control position, which involved putting his knee on the young man's head. A struggle ensued for um, a little bit more than two minutes, and uh, finally, as other officers showed up, he was cuffed and carried away. Obviously, video of an incident like this in the wake of the killing of George Floyd was immensely controversial, alarming, and um, prompted a sort of activist response, as well as a pretty swift response from several elected, elected officials, including Congressman Paul Tonko, who said after seeing a longer video of this incident, that um, he was he was pretty stunned and unhappy with it. So that, of course, led to the police sort of saying, wait for the full investigation and the explanation that, well, yes, uh, he was kneeling on his head, but the head is much harder than the neck because the neck controls the carotid artery, which, uh, of course, is something a law enforcement leader does not want to be explaining how it's much more okay for an officer to be kneeling on somebody's skull as opposed to their neck in this type of environment or really any type of environment. The police released body cam footage from the incident as well, which you can see at timesunion.com. Did that you know, bring anything new to light or did that help their case at all? Well, the body cam video made it clear that the young man ran away from Officer Palmer 
I think there are still a lot more questions about the officer was in the right or within police protocol to demand that this young man turn around and put his, put his hands back to be cuffed. And of course, there are still a lot of questions as to whether or not that type of move, putting a knee on somebody's head, is acceptable. And already you've seen a response from the police force saying that there's going to be a review, that those types of restraints should not be used, um, what have you. But there's, there's going to be a, a lot more to come out about this. There is, of course, a full official investigation into the incident. And the officer, I believe, has been placed on desk duty while that investigation is ongoing. Now, changing the subject, but not changing the subject too much, speaking of law and order, insert show riff here, uh, the DA's race in Albany has been decided. Yes, Matt Toporowski has fallen to uh, the incumbent David Soares in the race for the Democratic nomination for district attorney in Albany County. It was really the only kind of hot race in the region for the primary. Everything else was pretty much decided. The count, of course, went on much longer beyond primary night because there were so many absentee ballots. But Toporowski basically conceded after the, uh, the gap had grown so far that it became statistically impossible for him to, to meet up with, uh, with Soares. And Soares came out and held a press conference on Wednesday and was asked, you know, what's it going to be like um, working with, for example, Mayor Kathy Sheehan after she endorsed Matt Toporowski over you. And he said, oh, no, it's, it's not going to be a big deal. I'll, I'll, I can work with anybody. You know, I, I understand that, the, you know, political calculations had to be made. And he also had some fairly uh, sharp words for his opponent, uh, who, of course, used to work for the district attorney's office and left under circumstances that late in the race were called into dispute. Toporowski said that he was never asked to resign. And uh, Soares's uh, chief deputy said, in fact, he had asked Matt Toporowski to to resign after a couple of incidents. Well, I wonder if this is this will be the last that we will see of Matt Toporowski, or we will have a repeat of this race, or or something else in the future. You have to give him a lot of credit. He running from David Soares left. He really made it a race without a doubt. He made missteps. I think it's fair to say over the over the course of the campaign. But he was really able to marshal a lot of progressive support with the backing of organizations like Citizen Action. And a lot of he energized a lot of young people. It's it's absolutely true. Well, let's change subjects again. Let's talk about COVID, which we've been talking about for four months now, five months now. There's some question now. Everybody's wondering, you know, what's going to happen in the fall with schools. And we had some. Uh, updates on that this week. Can you tell us about them? Yes. From Washington, D.C., probably all the way to your house, Jess, there's a lot of people thinking about whether or not the little ones are going to be able to go back into school uh, in the fall. You have the White House pressing very hard, and now the CDC is going to issue new, less restrictive guidelines for school districts as to whether or not they can start up again. In New York State, meanwhile, um, Mayor Bill de Blasio of New York City announced that schools would reopen, but on a limited basis. And that drew a very sharp rebuke, as it usually does, um, from Governor Andrew Cuomo whenever Mayor de Blasio tries to assert uh, his, uh, his authority as the executive of the city. The governor snapped back and said, no, 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 to both de Blasio and to Trump. 
the decision on when schools can reopen is um, exclusively a state decision. The governor said that the state will issue new recommendations, guidelines for school districts, and then next month, the beginning of August, districts will find out if they're going to be allowed to reopen again and under what strictures. We are waiting on tenterhooks for the answers. Yeah, I mean, every, you know, people have to plan their return to work. Kids have to plan to re- their return to school because those two things are uh, intimately bound up. All right, well, we will check back in with you next week. Thanks a lot, Casey. At the end of May, a series of peaceful protests and violent incidents took place on Albany streets in the wake of the death of George Floyd in Minnesota. Since then, Mayor Kathy Sheehan has instituted a ban on the chokehold and introduced other police reforms in hopes of improving the strained relationship between law enforcement and the public. Albany Police Chief Eric Hawkins recently sat down for an exclusive interview with reporter Masara Makati to talk about being black and blue and how he hopes to bridge the gap. Maybe we could just start, I think, from the beginning. If Mm -hmm. you can talk to me more about your childhood and your experiences throughout your youth, what it was like for you to grow up black. What were some of the experiences that you had growing up black? Yeah, so I grew up in a town called Pontiac, Michigan. And it was a uh, majority black community, working class community, and uh, the factories were what drove the economy in that in that city. So we had uh, large uh, General Motors, uh, Ford, Chrysler factories, and so that's where everybody worked. And for many of of those, like my parents and and other parents in that in that era, um, that was their introduction to middle class lifestyle. You know, so my parents were that first generation of, of African-Americans that, you know, they were able to get that. And so I grew up in that type of environment. You know, it was right in the uh, in the early 70s and in mid 70s, we were just coming out of the civil rights um, protests of the, of the 60s. And so things were still still raw in terms of relations between um, police and minorities, especially African-Americans. And so all of that was still lingering. And so growing up, you know, for me, you know, talking with my parents and my uncles and other relatives, you know, the message was try not to antagonize the police, try not to be threatening to the police, because if you are, you know, you may not come home. So it just became a way of life. You know, I wasn't the victim of any brutality or I was, I was never arrested or anything like that. I had friends who were and... Who were um, victims of brutality or arrested? Uh, both. Both, and, and they would tell the stories about how when they were arrested, you know, the cops would take them someplace and, and you know, beat them up in the back seat and, and take them to the station house. And, you know, and, 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 and but the odd thing about it was it was just accepted. It was almost as if, OK, if you do bad, if you do something bad in the community and the cops come and they take you away, you're going to get thumped a little bit. You know, they're going to beat you up and they're going to take you in. And it was almost like. It was, it was almost like a, a form of discipline that was accepted almost in the community. It wasn't or liked. expected, at least. Expect, it, expected yeah. is more of a better word for it, yes. They, they almost expected that to happen. Didn't like it, you know, knew it was wrong, but just figured, okay, you know, this is just a part of, you know, if something happens, you know, this is what the consequence is going to be. And so I grew up in, in that type of world. 
I truly thought I was going to go to this big college and be a, this famous basketball player and eventually go and become a professional basketball player. You think you could have done it? Well, reality hit <laughs> after a while. Then I realized, you know what? These my aspirations aren't really aligned with my realities of the moment, and I just I just wasn't good enough to to do that. <laughs> um, and so I realized that you know once I got into college, and you know I'm not going to be this famous basketball player. Mm. Okay, so now I've got to do something. And there was a friend of mine who was a police cadet in a local um, police department. And uh, he told me, you know, hey, um, you know, this department is hiring for police cadets and, you know, you can go to college for free and, you know, you can, you know, come work in the department and write parking tickets and all this other stuff. My first thought was, I don't want to do this. Everything I've heard about policing and law enforcement was, you know, was anti-black, you know, was oppressive to people who look like me. Why, why do I want to do that? But then I, I happened to run into him a couple more times. And every time I saw him, he was all, always happy. And this is an African-American uh, young man also. And he was, he was always happy and, you know, talking about the opportunities and, and things like that. And so I decided, you know what, let me give it a try. Let me see how it is. You know, I've heard all these things about policing and law enforcement. Let me try it. Let me see if, this, if I can have some kind of, kind of impact. And so I got in, got in as a police cadet and eventually I was promoted to a police officer. And back then, you know, being a police officer was a prestigious position. You know, people looked up to you. You know, everybody wanted to give you free food at restaurants. You know, you wanted to invite you everywhere. You know, they, you were really looked up to. And, you know, it was a well-paid career back then. You knew that you were going to get a retirement for life and health insurance for life if you just worked 20 years. Mm -hmm. um, and so you looked at all those things and then you looked at an opportunity. Okay, let me see if I can do this and see if I can make some kind of difference, especially since you know, everybody that I know, at least those who look like me, they all had this negative perception about policing. And so I thought, okay, maybe if I got into this and they know me and they see me, maybe it can change some perceptions about it. How do you dismantle an institution that, that and especially when you're talking about policing, you know, history lessons show you that police were invented in America specifically to police slaves. Yes. You know, that's the history of, of law enforcement in America. So how do you take an institution that was founded on that notion and and transform the way it can interact with, with communities of color and specifically black communities? That's a big bite of an apple to, to take in, in, in terms of um, totally dismantling. And so I don't, I don't know if that's realistic at this point. Mm -hmm. But I think that what certainly can happen is a reimagining. For me, what that means is um, rethinking the way that we deliver this service. Mm -hmm. You know, for so many years, we've thought in law enforcement, you know, law enforcement is, is this closed society. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's almost a secret society in terms of how we train and, you know, how, you know, the culture that we, you know, that we have. And, and we always think that it's that it's almost an us versus them kind of mentality in law enforcement. That's, that's how it's been. Yeah. And, and so, in my opinion, we've had this idea that, we, that we've got to impose a policing style on our communities based on our experience and, and what we know about safety and security and all those other things. And so I think that a reimagining of, our, of, of the fundamental way of delivering services has to happen. And, and it doesn't mean tearing down or dismantling the institution itself. There is so much good in law enforcement. I mean, we have officers who are out there saving lives, making people feel better, helping communities with the quality of life, helping people smile. 
You know, I mean, there's so much that is good about law enforcement that we've got to preserve that piece of it, but also realize that we may have to make some fundamental adjustments in how we police, it, particularly certain communities. It's an inescapable fact that for all that we do good in law enforcement, we are having some problems connecting and delivering services to the minority community, particularly the African-American community. Mm -hmm. So I think if we can have this reimagining, that is a, a great first step. And incidentally, we're going to be mandated to do that. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that was one of your questions coming up is, you know, with yep. the governor's executive order. Mm -hmm. And it, that's exactly what that order is going to force law enforcement agencies in New York state to do. So can you give me specific examples of some of the reforms that you would want to see? Because we're looking at, um, you know, some of the reforms that we have seen, obviously, Kathy Sheehan uh, proposed some reforms last week, including the ban of the use of chokehold. There have been questions about using tear gas. People are calling to defund the police heavy statement, but basically let's shift resources from policing into these other sectors of life. I think I, I read somewhere too that one municipality said that their officers couldn't show up armed to right. scenes on, on uh, mental health issues, was yes. it? So there are all these different ideas swirling around. Could you just give me some specific examples of what you're thinking about proposing to, um, you know, to change in this police department? Well, there are two things that really stand out to me, and that is, uh, assessing the role of police officers and policing social issues. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned it, you know, we're talking mental health, mm -hmm. uh, substance abuse, homelessness, unhealthy family structures. Mm -hmm. You know, so we have, you know, a, a parent that's having a problem with a child and they're calling the police for some of those, for, to, to intercede in some of those things. I think a, a major reform that, that can change fundamentally policing is, is having is having systems in place that deal with those issues and minimize the context that police officers are having in those situations. Because what we're seeing is that in many use of force situations, mm -hmm. especially those that escalate to, to lethal force, we're seeing that they started off with some sort of interaction or intervention with a police officer with some sort of social issue. Mm -hmm that maybe if we had somebody else who could have dealt with that before it escalated to that point, maybe it wouldn't have resulted in a police officer becoming involved in that. Yeah. Um, and so, I, so I, I've heard this, this idea that, you can, that we can divert some funding from police departments into some of those social agencies that can deal with those sort of problems. I'm not fundamentally opposed to that. I, mm -hmm. I, I, I see some value to that. I just think we have to be very careful when we're talking about diverting funds from policing that that's going to impact the basic function of policing. You know, when we're talking community policing and making sure that we have enough officers on the streets to handle calls for service, make sure we, we have a, you know, system, a, a system in place that draws and attracts quality young men and women in, into uh, policing. So, so that's one thing, the, the social aspect of it. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I think is, is probably needed, and I see this happening, you know, probably within the next five years or so, is to have, there's gonna probably be some national standards in terms of use of force and, and other policies and procedures for policing. Right now, it's real loose. You know, there are some best practices that are out there by some of the major police organizations like PERF and IACP and some of those, um, but nothing that standardizes um, codes of conduct with major issues 
that police officers handle on a day-to-day -day basis, especially, like I said, with respect to use of force and uh, vehicle pursuits and things like that. And what you end up seeing is you're seeing these issues being handled differently in different states. Yep. And indeed, sometimes in different cities within states. Mm -hmm. And what that leads to is confusion with people. So you, you have some inappropriate conduct in one department mm -hmm. and that same conduct results in, in different consequences for in another. And so it, like I said, it leads to a confusion and distrust. I just want to know how you've been feeling um, internally, because you said this at the protest. You said, how do I balance what I know, my reality, what's personally inside of me, and then, you know, try to have some sort of an influence or conversation with my officers, mm -hmm. too? That's a tough line to walk. The toughest part of my job right now and what, what is, is so exhausting for me is uh, is maintaining that balance of uh, of supporting my officers, making sure that there are consequences for those who have officers who who do bad things, but also conveying to the community that that I do hear and that I do understand, and that I'm not just this token that's been propped up to appease the black community, and it's it's just so exhausting um, right now, it's especially with the tension. Um, that we're seeing across the country. And, it, and it's almost like I'm, I'm caught right smack in the middle. Mm -hmm. I still have a 500 member organization that I've got to run to make sure that they are serving this community and keeping this community safe. Uh, but then, you know, the fact of the matter is, you know, I'm, I'm still an African-American man who, who still hears from the African-American community this pain and this frustration, and, and I understand it. Mm -hmm. But I've got to make sure that that I that this balance is maintained, and yeah. that you know I still have to be a law enforcement executive that's fair, and I still have to be a person that people in the community, the African American community, can look to and say, well, you know what, he did it, he's there, he's making a difference, he understands. It's an uphill battle. Yes. And you're walking it, you know, I don't want to say you're walking it alone. I'm sure you have many, you know, allies and whatnot, but still, there's this huge looming institution and you. Yeah. And that's not easy. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's painful to hear that my officers may not feel that they're getting the support that they need during a time like this. And so I've got to balance that. And it's painful to hear that members of the African-American community feel that I'm not listening, um, that I've just sold out the community, you know? And that's, you know, so those things are, you know, they're both painful to deal with. And so I've got to, like I said, I've got to maintain this balance. And sometimes, uh, you know, this balance involves antagonizing one side or the other. Because mm -hmm. sometimes, you, you, you know, it's, it's hard to walk that middle ground, mm -hmm. you know, because you're always going to, sometimes walking that middle ground, you end up antagonizing both sides. After the break, can local strip clubs be open right now? If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. The Capital Region is currently in stage four of the state's reopening process. 
That means bars and restaurants can be open for indoor dining at half capacity. But it also means entertainment venues like theaters, movie theaters, and stadiums still have the red light. Caught in the middle? Strip clubs. Are they bars? Or are they entertainment? I talked to senior writer Steve Barnes, who wrote about two local strip clubs that are now open. Strip clubs are open now, is that right? Well, maybe. Um, they are open. And strip clubs being, in some cases, a little, well, fly-by-night or a little less obvious than, say, you know, a department store. Let's say there are six that regularly advertise as being open in Albany, Saratoga, and Rensselaer County. Of those, two, I've confirmed, are actually open, pouring beverages and having exotic entertainment. This is legal at this point? No. At no place that I could find or anybody else could find do the words strip clubs or gentlemen's club or entertainment venues with exotic dancing or whatever stack of euphemisms we want to use. At no place did did that get spelled out. I was going to say laid out, but then I thought that was like a sexual pun, so I'm not going to say laid out. The problem is, start with this. One, in New York, strip clubs are classified as bars and restaurants. And bars and restaurants are allowed to reopen. And I know there's different phases and things, but let's just strictly talk about uh, the capital region. So capital region, bars and restaurants were allowed to start outdoor service on June 4th. And then on June 17th, they were allowed to start indoor service And so strip clubs thought, well, we can reopen. And one of them, the first of them, Shenanigans and Colony did. They started on June 4th with patio service, you know, scantily clad waitresses. And actually, given court rulings, they could have been topless because you can be topless outdoors now. With scantily clad waitresses bringing drinks to the patio and there were big TVs live streaming the strippers on the stage inside. And then they moved indoors on the 17th and had been doing strippers on the stage going down to topless and also scantily clad waitresses. And as a result of them doing that, this club over in Latham called Night Moves said, hey, you know, let's get, we can get in on the act. They've been doing this for a month. So they started just this past Monday, which was July 6th. And the difference here is that Night Moves is an all nude club. In New York State, if you have alcohol service, you cannot have all nude dancers. They have to keep something on the bottom. Night Moves cannot have an alcohol, have a liquor license, so Night Moves is a juice bar uh, with fully nude dancing. Except, of course, now they're not fully nude. They have to keep one thing on. That was going to be my next question. Does it count? Does a mask count? Will that disqualify the fully nude? Is that false advertising? I don't think so, because they, they would argue that in the past they've had routines in which somebody came out as a nurse and had a mask on. And they're prepared for that, I guess. <laughs> yes. And let's, let's just say here, you're sort of joking about it, but these club owners are taking this extremely seriously. The owner of Night Moves, I have never met a businessman anywhere else who is more forthright or forthcoming or honest about what he does than the guy that owns Night Moves. He really is. He's completely responsive. He says, this is what I do. It's almost as if the additional stigma he says, first he's a strip club, second he's an all nude club. He understands all of that additional stigma. And so he says, I am absolutely going to be a rock solid businessman. He talked to at least eight people before he decided to reopen, made calls, poured over websites, The Association of Club Executives is the national trade group for strip club owners, and they have a 20-page 
best practices document that he's adopted and he's following all of these things. He's doing temperature checks at the door for everybody, staff and customers. He's got a one strike and you're kicked out rule for masks. If a dancer takes her mask down, even below her nose, or a customer does, gets thrown out. And there's elaborate sanitizing and all sorts of things. And and shenanigans, they're also doing the same thing. So they believe because they're a bar and restaurant, they're taking these safety precautions, they're okay. And also in phase four, which started last week locally on July 1, bars are allowed to have indoor music. You can have a small band. You know, the bands have to be six feet from customers or if there's a singer, 12 feet. The bar owners rationalize, what's the difference in entertainment, whether it's a dancer on a stage or a solo acoustic guitar player on a stage. Now, so somebody, I sense uh, a, a big butt there. Yes, yes. <laughs> I actually did not mean to make that a pun. When we're talking about stripping and nudity, you know, the puns are really easy. So now we've got butt, you know, we've got bun puns we can do throughout. But, but let's put that behind us. See what I did there? So <laughs> moving along, the state says, nope. They make a distinction between the entertainment aspect and the restaurant aspect. They said they can serve drinks. They can serve drinks with scantily clad waitresses. They can't have dancers. But nobody can explain, or nobody's been willing to explain on the record explicitly to me from the state why dancers are not allowed. And then there's also the analogy to you can get your hair cut. You can go to a barber, get your hair cut, your beard trimmed, or get your face shaved. That person is as close to you as a stripper would be in a private dance. And that's, those are all allowed. The state said no, and Albany County you know, said that where these two clubs that are open said it's their position, even though there is no explicit language related to strip clubs, it's their position that dancers are not allowed. So they're in this gray area. Shenanigans, while I was reporting this story, which is to say over the course of two days, changed their policy. Because I asked the questions, I said, you know, why exactly what are you basing this on? So they've, and I'm sorry, all the gentlemen who've been going to shenanigans for a month, but yes, I ruined it for you, at least temporarily by asking these questions. Shenanigans has stopped the topless dancing. It'll just be scantily clad waitresses who will have, you know, lingerie on the bottom and then pasties on the top. I mean, it will be extremely minimal on the top, but there's something there. And of course, masks. Basically, Hooters waitresses with worse food and less on. You know, I I dare say you kind of corner the strip club beat if there is such a thing. And you have, you know, obviously covered the owner of Night Moves uh, previously for news that he has made. You even were featured on uh, a segment on the Colbert Report about, say, eight or nine years ago now. Steve Barnes of the Albany Times Union is the area's most esteemed art critic. We asked Mr. Barnes for his professional review of the show. Yeah, well, <laughs> what happened is the, uh, the owner of Night Moves, and I happen to completely agree with him on this, contends that uh, sales tax should not apply to entry fees and fees paid for private dances because there's an exemption for sales tax for artistic performances in New York State. So you go to the ballet, you go to the theater, you don't pay sales tax on that ticket. You go to a basketball game, you do. With that belief, he just never paid sales, never charged, never paid sales tax. And the owner got hit with basically a million dollar back tax bill. And so they took it to court and eventually went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court um, saying he should not have to pay this. 
he eventually lost, but he's still fighting after years. I can't imagine what the legal bills are because he believes it is an artistic endeavor. And if you think about it, and this is the argument I made uh, on, on Colbert, if you think about it, it really is because there's choreography, there's music, there's aesthetic intent, and there's performing, they rehearse and they perform for an audience. It's exactly what a ballet does. So the show commissioned me to go to Night Moves and review it from an artistic perspective. There's more theater involved in the lap dance than the stage. And a girl came up and she just clambered on top of me as if I were a jungle gym. She's conveying a message to the... And you're like, oh, well, it, it's dirtier. You know, they take their clothes off. Are you, you mean to tell me that ballerinas are not sexy? Or scantily whole... clad? Or scantily clad. Dance is extremely... Sensual, not just sensuous, but sensual, it is. And modern dance, sometimes they even dance nude in modern dance. So how is that different from strip clubs? It is purely about puritanical reasons and the court, courts are abs absolutely playing politics with this because it would be a multi-billion dollar decision if nationwide they said strip clubs don't have to pay sales tax. So Colbert though, wanted to see if this was art. Smashed my face into her chest and so my glasses were sort of askew. They might talk. I had breast sweat on my glasses, which was the first time on the job. My conclusion was, yes, it is absolutely art. Now it's lousy art. It's terrible art, but we don't make a distinction among crappy art and good art about whether it's art. That's a strong argument. Now, can the owner of Night Moves and perhaps the other strip club owners around here use that same argument if they are facing, you know, closure or shutdown or whatever for opening up at this time. Can they use that argument? Well, it depends because nor normally dance is done in larger venues and in different forms. You know, like locally dance will happen at the, you know, they'll do the Nutcracker uh, at uh, the Proctor's in the Palace. They'll bring in Modern Dance to the Egg, Jacob's Pillow Dance Festival. But these are, you know, venues with hundreds of seats. You know, whereas Night Moves is a little place. I mean, Night Moves, if it's a thousand square feet, I would be shocked. You know, maybe <laughs> with the distancing, they're gonna fit 15 people in there. They're absolutely 10 plus feet with like a big industrial rope. He told me, I didn't go check it out this time. Between them, so there, there's a moat there. They just, and there absolutely is that distance. So I don't even think they need to plead the artistic thing. They say, we're no different than a band. Why is dancing different than a guy with a guitar? It's not. And so here, I think it's once again, it's prudery. It's people not wanting to say, people in the government not wanting to say strip clubs. We've only got six of them locally, but they are part of our economy. They are legal. And so we should not be squeamish to avoid it or try to essentially do the same sort of disqualification that was done with the sales tax and night moves. You know, what's good for the guitarist should be good for the stripper. I've never said that before, but I think that's a good, that's a good phrase. What's good for the guitar should be good for the stripper. That's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. And stay cool out there.